Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science in Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. I am so excited about our guest today, I can barely contain myself. We have Dr. Jason Webb, who is an Assistant Professor of Medicine, Psychiatry, and Behavioral Medicine at Duke University School of Medicine. He completed his internship and residency in internal medicine and psychiatry at Duke University School of Medicine and followed up with a fellowship in hospice and palliative medicine. So this man is a triple threat. He is boarded in internal medicine, hospice and palliative care, psychiatry, neurology, and psychiatry. So, wow, I know when I was in pharmacy student, I uh, I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up, but it's not going to have anything to do with psych because it's just too complicated. And look at you, Dr. Webb, uh, welcome. We're delighted to have you. Thank you very much. It's always fun to hear the triple threat. You are a triple threat. You're a scary dude here. You're so smart. Good grief. So you are the, the, probably the smartest person in the world about psych issues and end of life. So I have so many questions. Can we jump in? Yeah, please. Okay. So the one thing that makes me crazy is why do so many clinicians use quetiapine, Seroquel, for sleep? We see this all the time. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. It's, it, to be honest, it's really frustrating because um, – you know, I sort of joke around with my house staff, but I think some of the time that people use this is because it's Seroquel, for some reason, can be easier to sell than other things. But um, mm-hmm. it's, uh, I think really people figured out that this is a sedating medication because it's uh, essentially really an expensive form of Benadryl. It's a strong antihistamine. And, mm-hmm. and I think people don't know any better than to sort of pick something um, to use, that, particularly in this day and age with the opiate concerns, is that people are trying to avoid probably rightly so, benzodiazepines, um, the non-benzodiazepines, benzodiazepines like Ambien, um, mm-hmm. due to the risk for respiratory issues. And so somehow or another, uh, quetiapine or Seroquel seems like a safer alternative despite the toxicities and side effects that this medication can have. So what do you think about that? Do you think Seroquel is safer than, well, benzos with a strong anticholinergic effect concern me, but do you think there's, it's safer than the benzos and the non-benzo Z drugs? What are your thoughts? Well, I think it entirely depends on the patient population that you're taking care of. Um, I would argue that there are lots of good non-pharmacologic ways of managing insomnia. Um, mm-hmm. Cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, is highly underutilized. So for a lot of people, it's, there's not great access to it. Um, I think there are other antihistamines um, that could be potentially be used. Um, for example, um, like doxepin at very low dosages. It was recently... Mm-hmm. FDA approved in a different formulation called Silenor, which is super duper expensive, and there's no reason yeah. to not just use like a 10 milligram dose. Um, but I think particularly for patients with um, difficulty with sleep um, initiation, with essentially falling asleep, um, folks that found quetiapine can be useful for some patients. Um, however, if you have you know, patients with dementia, if you have patients with other neurocognitive impairments, if you have folks who are at risk for falls for the elderly, particularly with the alpha-adrenergic effect of cetiapine, which is it's highly potent at the alpha receptor. Um, it's, it's not a good choice for a lot of folks. Um, and particularly in the long run, um, there are the risks of developing, then for folks who doesn't have Parkinson's, some Parkinson, because um, it is a dopamine antagonist, so it's kind of low affinity, um, mm-hmm. and the potential for the um, metabolic side effects of the, of the agent. So, I think, you know, non-pharmacologic interventions, melatonin, CBT, um, 
Um, Remelfion would be an alternative um, to using this. And I think a lot of people just, they see it used in the hospital and for some reason think it's, it's a good, safer alternative. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned psychoses. Should Seroquel be used for psychoses? And I'm particularly interested in, everybody seems to grab Seroquel for patients who have delirium with Parkinson's disease. So when should we use it in general for psychoses? And what do you think about Parkinson's disease? Yeah, so I think, you know, when we're talking about psychosis, we have to make sure that we're kind of grouping things into the appropriate type of um, psychotic symptoms. So for a patient with a true, true psychotic disorder like bipolar mania, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, um, this can be an effective tool for managing um, psychotic symptoms. Now, this is typically way above the dose that general internists or palliative care doctors would be used to. We're talking dosages of quetiapine in the 4 to 600 milligram range where wow. you're actually getting some D2 antagonism in addition to the sort of serotonergic effect of the drug. Mm-hmm. Um, so for patients with true psychotic disorders, um, we're using real true psychotic dosing, uh, antipsychotic dosing of quetiapine, which is something that you know, particularly you'll never see in an ICU, you'll never see in a medical setting where people are using 12.5 milligrams, 25, 50, maybe 100 milligrams. Um, mm-hmm. And really, at that low dose, you're just getting strong antihistamine. You're getting this sedative effect of the drug. Mm-hmm. I think in patients with Parkinson's disease psychosis, um, for a long time, um, we, and there were guidelines published in the American Journal of Psychiatry and recommendations for using quetiapine um, for Parkinson's psychosis, primarily for the fact that this is just kind of a strong antihistamine. It was sedating. Mm-hmm. But I think what we didn't realize was that a lot of the antipsychotic benefit was really coming from targeting serotonin 5-HT2A, 5-HT2C receptors um, mm-hmm. with the drug. And that, um, that so people would use it sort of in that off-label formulation. The reality is, is that actually for um, Parkinson's psychosis, if you look at the meta-analyses and some of the RCTs, actually clozapine for the long time actually had the best data. There was randomized controlled trial data showing that clozaril could be used for Parkinson's psychosis. But nobody uses mm-hmm. that stuff in the United States because of the, the blood dyscrasias and the risks um, associated with it, and also just the monitoring. Um, so if you're in the hospital doing a palliative care consult for patients with Parkinson's psychosis, nobody's going to pull out Clozeril or use that unless you're trained as a psychiatrist and have approval to use it. Mm-hmm. So um, it wasn't until um, Vansarium came along um, in the last few years that um, there's really actually been a non-dopamine-blocking agent that's been potentially useful for this, um, and it mm-hmm. has a much more novel mechanism of action um, than any of the prior drugs. So mm-hmm. long answer, when it answer your question, yes, you could use quetiapine, primarily because it's more of an antihistamine. It has 5-HT2A, 2C um, antagonism, but there's probably a better agent now, which is pimavanserin, um, which has no D2 antagonism, um, and only selectively blocks those serotonin receptors, which we think probably is part of the, um, the driving force in Parkinson's disease psychosis. It's interesting. The mechanism of pimavanserin is inverse agonist and antagonist. Initially, they called that a contragonist. What are your thoughts yeah. on this crazy mechanism of action? Well, you know, it's, again, quite novel that they um, you know, discovered this. So the you know, for folks where this is a drug where there's, you know, um, blocking of 5-HT2A receptors and then also agonizing inverse agonism of those receptors. Um, and that's the most potent 
um, mechanism for the drug. There's less potency at the 5-HT2C receptor, and it has, again, a similar antagonist, inverse agonist action. Um, and this is really mm -hmm. the first example of a drug that had, quote, unquote, antipsychotic um, action that didn't block D2 receptors. And, mm -hmm. you know, there was some initial um, kind of controversy around this agent, um, and as they continue to follow its use, um, it's seemingly, you know, effective um, with probably better safety in patients, particularly if you've got other um, patients that you may see with, like, Lewy body dementia, patients with Alzheimer's type disease that have some Parkinsonian features um, where you're worried that any sort of blockade of the D2 receptor may worsen those, that symptomatology, um, but this has a really interesting mechanism of action. And so the idea that you could um, help with psychosis primarily only by blocking um, serotonin receptors and then also sort of reversely agonizing, I think, is where this drug um, has some really interesting um, utility. Um, and I'll say in the few times that we've used it, it's actually been really relatively impressive. Um, I don't have a huge, you know, case log to talk about it, but um, I've seen it work effectively um, and in, in that very specific patient population with Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. uh, just one word about uh, Clozeril. I don't think uh, a hospice or palliative care provider, particularly a hospice person, would start Clozeril for Parkinson's disease psychoses because you're right about the monitoring. But I do want to point out that if someone has been getting Clozeril consistently and being followed by a mental health care practitioner, if the patient is admitted to hospice potentially for an unrelated reason, if you go to the Clozeril REMS page, there is a form that the physician can sign to um, do away with the white blood cell um, count monitoring for the next six months. It's ClozerilREMS.com. So I thought that was interesting. So from a pharmacoeconomic perspective, though, since I'm the hospice drug girl, when you're looking at Parkinson's disease psychoses and you had to prioritize Seroquel, Clozeril, or Pimavanserin, which is thousands of dollars a month, how would you put this in the pecking order? Yeah, and I think that's really important, and I think that's one of the challenges that we run into. And I think, one, to your point about, you know, if you have a patient that comes on hospice, like even, for example, who's been started on Clozeril, for psychosis and they get admitted to your hospice, please don't stop the medication. Um, there are ways to make sure that you can get it. Um, I mean, I think one of the realities is, is that we have to make um, a choice for our patients not to incur worsening financial toxicity as we approach um, the end of patient's lives. Um, at the same time, making sure that we're picking medicines that can be effective. Um, so I think in that case, I think for a lot of patients, we tend to typically use quetiapine um, mm -hmm. because it's Again, there's not as much of the hoops to jump through. There are some disease risks. People are more familiar with its use. So I'd say mm -hmm. that that's a safe alternative. It's probably not in the future hopefully going to be as big of an issue over time. And hopefully mm -hmm. as the prices go down, we could use more convincerin in the hospice setting. But I think mm -hmm. right now, um, if you have a patient really that is having um, symptomatic psychosis that's affecting their quality of life, that quetiapine would be a reasonable option to try. Um, okay. And if, if you want to be a little bit more evidence-based, um, you could try Clozeril and could get, you know, the dispensation to be able to do that. Um, and I think some of the because of the cost would be kind of third on the list um, in that mm -hmm. setting. What kind of doses of Seroquel are you using for psychosis in that situation? Would you start at like 25 TID? How would you dose that? Yeah, so I think with any of these medications, it's always start low, go slow. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's typically, and I think depending on um, other Parkinson-type symptoms, and what I teach our fellows is that one of the big things that you don't want to do, particularly if you have somebody who's still at home who's potentially a little bit ambulatory, is cause them to have a fall. 
Um, but mm -hmm. typically start at like 12.5 milligrams, um, you know, BID, PRN, um, and then sort of treat to effect. And if that dose doesn't work, then slowly escalate the dose to 25 milligrams, maybe Q8, and mm -hmm. and then just sort of assess what the daily dosage is to use. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, talk to the family about, you know, monitoring for any symptoms of sort of orthostasis, um, Mm -hmm. and, and particularly as you kind of get the, the sedating effect of this medication. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is also just the conversation with caregivers about what the goal is of the therapy. Is that sure. if the, if the, the, the treatment is, is we're trying to target symptoms that are causing a detriment in quality of life. And so mm -hmm. really the goal isn't to sedate the patient, it's to try to see if we can decrease the psychotic symptoms or agitation um, to a point that they can have a good quality of life, participate in the things that they enjoy doing for as long as we can. Mm -hmm. I just know it's a real struggle in hospice when these medications come on the market that even some of the older drugs like the cholinesterase inhibitors and memantine, they're still fairly expensive. And, yeah. you know, you, you wonder how much of an effect are you really getting? So between those medications and now this Pimavanserin and Nudexta is the one that we hear about with Pseudobulbar effect, these are really expensive medications. And uh, it's very difficult in hospice to um, have that conversation with the patient or the family and the caregivers um, but often, more often than not, we see a point of diminishing return, and it's a difficult conversation. I'd like to go back to one other thing you mentioned earlier. You briefly mentioned something about reversal of the sleep-wake cycle, which I've kind of always associated as an early sign of impending delirium. What are your thoughts on that, and how would you treat that? The family gets exhausted with the patient basically awake all night long. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we hear from families is when um, that sleep-wake reversal happens, and it's Oftentimes, to me, also a sign when you start to see behavioral changes that there's, the brain is not functioning well. There's more acute on chronic brain failure happening to this patient. And mm -hmm. um, so oftentimes, you know, the non-pharmacologic interventions of trying to engage the patient as much during the daytime, a well-lit, you know, home, well-lit hospital room to try to keep people awake during the day. Um, you know, there's some you know, suggestions that using melatonin, you know, and particularly what the mistake that some people make, and if you talk to some of the sleep experts, is that they'll try to give melatonin when, when it's dark already to try to get people to go to sleep. And really what the brain normally does is start to secrete melatonin at dusk with a peak onset of melatonin um, in the brain um, at the time of sort of post-sleep initiation to sort of help the sleep maintenance. So I typically recommend to folks to give the melatonin actually a couple of hours before you would anticipate the bedtime to try to get a peak mm -hmm. concentration um, to really try to help with the sleep-wake cycle. Um, mm -hmm. You know, for some folks, it's, you know, some classic music and a little bit of, you know, maybe a glass of warm milk <laughs> to sort of help, mm -hmm. help with that cycling. I think there are other options with, you know, trying to maintain, um, you know, cycles that wouldn't be, again, kind of getting back to the question of using quetiapine for sleep. For mm -hmm. some patients, um, trazodone um, can have some effective, uh, effectiveness mm -hmm. for helping kind of maintaining sleep-wake cycle. Again, there is some um, orthostasis there as well that you have to sort of monitor. Um, and, and for some of our patients where there is a bit more of a need for ongoing sleep maintenance, again, I mentioned um, that things like um, low-dose of adoxetin um, mm -hmm. can be helpful mm -hmm. in that setting as well. Um, so I tend okay. to typically use that for, for healthier patients. Mm -hmm. Would you ever consider using methylphenidate during the day to perk the patient up so hopefully they would be a little sleepier later? No, to be honest, I've, I've actually not done that for patients, particularly with sleep-wake reversal. Um, again, it's sort of, you know, you're treating one thing, and then if they get agitated at night, 
um, you know, trying to avoid some of that polypharmacy. Um, sure. You know, it's definitely kind of more of the, the tactic that I tend to recommend. Okay. Well, let's switch gears for a second. You and I did a podcast oh, about a year or so ago uh, when that big study came out of Australia looking at haloperidol and risperidol um, versus placebo for patients who were receiving palliative care in an inpatient Australian unit. Um, and they showed that the active drugs actually led to death sooner than the placebo. So it caused quite a stir. So we had a lovely conversation about that. And I just the other day I got an email from a colleague saying, well, this is the final nail in the coffin for Haldol, referring to the this paper published in October of this year in New England Journal of Medicine titled Haloperidol and Zeprazidone for Treatment of Delirium and Critical Illness. So what are your thoughts? Are you familiar with that study? I am, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so really interesting study. Also, yeah, kind of frustrating in trying to kind of put this together in the grand scheme of how to manage delirium and particularly the role of antidepressant agents. Um, so you know, briefly, the take-home was that this was a study um, in the intensive care unit, primarily with patients with um, shock from sepsis, um, also with respiratory failure, where they looked at um, comparing Haldol versus placebo or Zeprazidone, which is a second-generation agent, versus placebo. And their primary outcome was to look at um, the number of days alive free from delirium over kind of a 14-day course of the treatment. So they were using this kind of as a... Um, as a treatment to try to decrease delirium um, duration and sort of a kind of a almost a pre-treatment um, once the onset comes on, um, and then also looked at a lot of secondary outcomes, um, in particular mortality, toxicities associated with these agents. Um, and the big take-home was is that there were really no their primary outcome didn't show any improvement in the number of days free from delirium during the 14 days of the study, and there were no um, significant secondary outcomes, um, including um, toxicities, which is really important because the doses of haloperidol and the president that they used in this trial, in particular haloperidol, were really high. Um, primarily, like a, on average, I think 10 milligrams a day, up to 20 milligrams of haloperidol. Um, wow. And to be honest, <laughs> yeah, and to be honest, the majority of the patients in the study, if you look at their sort of um, like uh, table two, where they give the demographics um, up front, was that the majority of the patients actually had hypoactive delirium. Um, mm -hmm. And they appropriately used the best validated way of assessing delirium, which is they used the CAM ICU. Um, and they designated if it was hypoactive versus hyperactive using the RAS score, which is a risk of an agitation sedation scale. And so if you had a positive CAM and then a RAS less than zero, they had hypoactive delirium, which really meant that they were sort of sedated or, or sleepy and less responsive. Um, mm -hmm. And so what I would kind of say the take home was that, um, you know, if you, this trial looked at, um, patients that were sick with, with shock, with respiratory failure, who were primarily hypoactively delirious, who were treated with either a first-generation agent health care at all or suprazidone. And, and my kind of big takeaways from this is that, um, that you know, these agents don't decrease the duration of delirium in the ICU when they're used at pretty high dosages. Um, the one just sort of clinical practice takeaways, I never use a prazodone. Um, honestly, in four years of practicing as a palliative care provider um, here at Duke, and primarily just based on the QTC prolongation risk of that agent, um, I've never prescribed it. Like, literally, I've never mm -hmm. prescribed the drug. Um, and yeah. I don't think a lot of people, particularly in our practice here and other places I've talked to, don't use the drug as commonly. Um, mm -hmm. In addition, I would say that most of us don't prescribe antidepressant agents for patients who 
um, just have hypoactive delirium. I mean, I think most of the time where we're using these are for patients with agitated, psychotic delirium, mm -hmm. um, and particularly at the very end of life when patients are symptomatic. And so I think for us in the palliative care population, when we're seeing patients in the intensive care unit, um, I don't think that we would use 10 milligrams of haloperidol to manage hypoactive delirium. And mm -hmm. so That's a big gun, huh? It is. And so I think it's, you know, really what this does tell us, though, is I think for, for outcomes in the ICU, particularly when patients have end organ dysfunction, which we think delirium in the intensive care unit when someone's critically ill is a sign of end organ dysfunction, is that this trial does tell us that, you know, using these agents aren't going to decrease the duration of delirium. And what it also does show is that it didn't necessarily hurt anybody. Um, so I think what they do kind of make the comment in their critique in the article is that, one, you can't apply this to other agents. So, again, as we had talked about the prior trial, what we don't know is, like, what a lanzapine or even quetiapine or something a bit more sedating. The prazodone is probably moderately antihistaminergic. But would something that's quite a bit more um, antihistaminergic potentially help more for somebody with an agitated, hyperactive delirium? And this mm -hmm. trial doesn't answer that question in the intensive care unit. Um, and so, really, I think also it's a little bit hard to extrapolate this to a patient in the last hours or days of life in the intensive care unit who also has a hyperactive irreversible delirium. Um, I think these are patients where when they're in the ICU with shock, with respiratory failure, if this is a reversible problem, um, again, I don't think that we would oftentimes use these agents first line. We would try to reverse the underlying medical reasons why the patient's delirious, try other non-pharmacologic interventions. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think it gives us a little bit more pause about when we do use them, particularly in the ICU. Um, but mm -hmm. I think it leaves more questions than answers, particularly for patients um, who are symptomatic, agitated, psychotic at the end of life. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, what's great to see is that there's these studies happening um, mm -hmm. to give us more information about how to better choose medications, choose dosages. Um, but it oftentimes, for me, leaves more questions than answers. Uh, you know, when I was reading this study, it dawned on me, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't think we routinely screen for hypoactive delirium. I've always kind of referred to these folks as the quietly confused, and it always mm -hmm. seems like they've got a lot going on. Are we dropping the ball? Should we be doing a better job screening for hypoactive delirium in hospice care or in palliative care a little earlier um, before hospice? And should we be treating it more aggressively? Yeah, so I, well, I think, you know, based on the fact that we know that hypoactive delirium is a strong indicator of mortality, it's a stronger indicator of mortality mm -hmm. if you look at the evidence compared to hyperactive delirium. And we tend to miss right. it, as you said, it's sort of a quietly confused patient. Um, and particularly in medical settings, when somebody is quietly confused, the family will oftentimes notice that first. And part of what I teach our trainees is that, you know, if a family member says, you know, my mom, something's not right with my mom, she's confused. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and that's not an agitated patient. It, that requires some deeper investigation of doing some, you know, assessments like using the CAM, using other bedside assessments for delirium, and then trying to determine if there are any reversible things happening. Like, is the patient, you know, is there a way to get the patient better hydrated? Do they just need their glasses and their hearing aids and need to be up and ambulated if possible? Um, so are there interventions that we can do to try to help um, restore or reverse that um, acute cognitive impairment? Um, and so I think we do probably need to do a much better job of that. And I think a lot of health systems are trying to implement ways of better assessing and screening for patients where we could try to make 
um, some better interventions up front. Um, I think we run into the challenge in hospice and palliative care that a lot of our patients develop delirium that's irreversible. Um, it's part of the um, transition towards the very end of their life. And, mm-hmm. um, and whether or not, again, I think there's a lot of controversy of whether or not we should be pharmacologically treating hypoactive delirium. Um, that was my next question. Yeah, I think, I don't know that we should. I think, again, part of it is trying to assess what are the symptoms. And Mm -hmm. for these patients, part of what you're trying to assess is if you're seeing somebody who's hyperactively delirious, and if that means, again, they have an impairment in attention and concentration, um, Mm -hmm. they can't attend to tasks, they can't pay attention, they can't follow along, they can't um, appropriately answer some cognitive questions of where they're oriented, Those patients, unless they're sort of symptomatic, I don't think that there's an indication to use pharmacologic interventions. Now, if they're hypoactive, but they're psychotic, and the family, like they're seeing things, hearing things, and they appear distressed, they're not agitated, but they're distressed by psychosis, that might be a time to intervene with some low doses of a medication. Mm -hmm. And again, what's not clear in like this trial from the New England Journal is you know, they're able to screen and identify patients that had delirium, the degree of distress that you're then assessing at the bedside or how symptomatic that patient is from the delirium. Um, you know, there wasn't sort of a quantitative, you know, assessment of severity. And so, so the question sort of becomes, I think that's sort of where the, the, um, the art of doing this is different than sometimes the science is mm-hmm. we're oftentimes at the bedside assessing how symptomatic that patient is. Um, but mm-hmm. I don't think carte blanche that if you identify delirium, particularly if it's hypoactive, that we treat that medication. You know, we should try to do non-pharmacologic sure. interventions, help with sleep-wake reversal, and find ways that we can try to reverse that. Um, but if the patient's sure. frankly symptomatic and psychotic, and we oftentimes associate much more symptomatic delirium with patients that are psychotic and agitated, because that's, you know, mm-hmm. jumps up and kisses you on the lips. I mean, you, you see that it's sure. happening. The nurses are distressed. The family's distressed. And so we tend sure. to rise to making pharmacologic decisions at that point. But I think it's, it's harder with hypoactive delirium. I agree. But speaking of the hyperactive delirium, as you just mentioned, where the patient is clearly frightened or perhaps harming themselves or at risk to harm other people, and the family's very upset, the nursing staff's upset. I know that we certainly try to maximize, you know, reorienting people because we've certainly had a lot of literature in the last couple of years that, you know, you mentioned how they'll you be burned at the stake, but especially in a nursing home, especially in a delirious dementia patient, what do we do? Do, do we tempt the fates and try to use Haldol? Do we reach for valproic acid or carbamazepine? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so again, I think the primary upfront conversation with everybody in the family is about what the goals are. And if the goals are trying to help manage the symptoms, then I think we try to identify how we you know, attack those symptoms. And so if they're psychotic and we think that they're maybe a response to an antidepressant agent, then try that. I think if you're in a where we run into some of the bigger issues are skilled facilities or other long-term care facilities that have policies um, to try to avoid using those agents at all costs. Um, mm-hmm. I think oftentimes in that situation, um, again, trials of medications to try to help with the quick reversal like melatonin or even trazodone may be helpful. And then honestly, in that setting, I tend to, to use Alproate. Um, again, typically go low and slow, the 250 or 500 at bedtime to start with. Um, and then potentially divide that dose um, BID um, mm-hmm. and, and, and try to use the, some of the sedating effect of that to try to help with the behavioral symptoms. Um, and that tends to be my 
kind of primary um, um, drug of choice if it's not an antidopaminergic. And I think okay. really it's, it's, trying, it's trying to um, target those symptoms that are causing distress and then providing a lot of education to the team and then to the family about the signs and symptoms at the end of life that can happen, um, particularly that delirium can be part of that. And we have an obligation mm -hmm. to manage those symptoms and to try to help improve people's symptoms, particularly if it's an irreversible and or yeah. terminal type of delirium. It can be a real, really difficult situation, though, particularly in a facility like a nursing home or assisted living where, you know, the family can't be there 24-7 and the facility doesn't have the staff to sit there and provide a compassionate presence for the patient. And you do feel guilty reaching for a drug for that purpose. Right. But it can be very challenging, I think, don't you? Yeah, it's very challenging. I think um, particularly for families that have the ability to be at the bedside, a cognitive anchor, and I oftentimes refer to families as just extremely important. But a lot of facilities um, you know, at different places, we get into a bind. And uh, in order to help teams manage symptoms, especially when you know, the caregivers are recognizing that someone is suffering um, and is having a lot of symptomatology, I think it's always that tender balance of sure. trying to maintain the ability to do those interventions um, that are non-pharmacologic or otherwise. Um, rather than, you know, I think there's been, there was a shift for a long time. You know, we talked about the pendulum swings where um, some of yeah. these medications were used um, inappropriately. And, and I think the recognition that there are other ways of doing this. Um, mm -hmm. And hopefully, you know, things like Timavinsarin and others that might, um, you know, for patients with Parkinson's disease, um, you know, might be an alternative. Again, though wildly expensive and probably really hard to access in those settings. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think in some ways, too, you know, sometimes benzodiazepines might be an option. Um, I know there's always concerns about, you know, causing some paradoxical reactions, but um, mm -hmm. I think in some settings, some patients do respond to those agents, um, even if mm -hmm. it's just, and so that can be an alternative. And, and that is an issue, because I've always taught, you know, people that benzos can actually make delirium worse or precipitate delirium. And the other day I was having a, having a lovely conversation with a hospice nurse, and we have a comfort pack or a starter kit, a, a little box with a few doses of several medications, and which includes Haldol and lorazepam often. And she, I said, well, how do you decide or how do you teach the family to decide whether to give the benzodiazepine or the antipsychotic? And she's like, well... I don't quite know. She said, I tell them if, if the patient's agitated. I said, are you referring to like motor agitation? She said, yeah, then I would tell them to give the, the benzo, but if they're really like, you know, agitated, like trying to take a swing at somebody or seeing things that aren't there, hallucinations and so forth, then use the Haldol. What do you think is the best advice to give a hospice nurse in that uh, area? Yeah, that's always a challenge, and that was one of the hardest parts of, you know, being a hospice medical director and taking a phone call in the middle of the night from a nurse who's out mm -hmm. to the family about you know, how to manage those symptoms. So this, this is the day-to-day -day work that our hospice nurses and families are trying to sort of navigate. Um, right. You know, I think the, the conversations that I've had, and this gets to some of the literature, is that, you know, in general, healthcare at all is not that sedating. It can be for some people, but I think, again, if the goal is that you're trying to um, particularly when a family or a caregiver is in danger of being harmed because somebody's, you know, again, psychomotor agitated, um, and you need to kind of really calm that behavior down. Um, oftentimes, then I'll recommend trying the healthcare at all up front, um, and then if that's not working, particularly if there's any risk of causing aphasia um, or worsening sort of motoric um, symptoms, then I think you're sort of 
adding in some lorazepam. Um, and I think there's some studies that have been coming out, particularly for folks with cancer towards the end of life, that that combination may be more effective, though may need to use higher dosages than we've thought about using in the past. Mm-hmm. So I think it just depends well, on the patient population. And I think this leads us to our last question. Dr. David Huey's work from MD Anderson, he did show that benzos may have a role in delirium, which again does fly in the face of a lot of what we've learned and, and teach other folks. So you alluded to the fact that a benzo may be appropriate. So what do you make of his work and how would you characterize that? Yeah, so David's study was really, really interesting um, for a very, very specific patient population. And I think, again, sort of lends to the subtleties in how we choose dosages. So his trial, which was patients with advanced cancer, um, at the very end of life, we're talking hours today, to develop um, agitated delirium, they looked at um, treating patients with either 2 milligrams of haloperidol alone um, and placebo or 2 milligrams of haloperidol um, plus um, 3 milligrams of lorazepam. And their primary outcome in the trial was um, sedation, so Richmond agitation sedation score. Um, I believe it was minus two to minus three. And mm-hmm. what they showed was that um, the combination of two milligrams of haloperidol plus lorazepam um, was effective in achieving that RAS score within about 30 minutes. It was durable out to about eight hours. Um, mm-hmm. And interestingly, what they also showed, and I think what a lot of people would be concerned about about using that high of a dose of benzodiazepine, was that there was no um, increased um, death in the arm that got lorazepam, so they didn't um, sort of hasten um, death at the end of life in those patients. Um, but the, the caregivers and the nurses that were caring for those patients um, showed significant improvement in, in their interpretation and comfort of those patients at the end of life. And so I think what's really important about this is that, again, this is, these are cancer patients in the last hours or days of life with agitated delirium. And in that setting, um, this suggests that that higher dose of a, of a benzodiazepine um, could be and can be effective in combination with 2 milligrams of haloperidol. What we have to be really careful with is that people don't extrapolate this to other patients because I think if right. you had a patient like an octogenarian with dementia come into the ED who's got a UTI with an agitated hyperactive delirium and you gave them 3 milligrams of lorazepam, you know, aspiration much? I mean, I think we're going we're gonna to mm-hmm. have major problems. Mm-hmm. So we have to be very careful with that data and we actually just had a journal club here with our um, uh, gynal colleagues where we talked about this trial um, really to highlight the role that this could play. Um, and we continue to sort of, you know, hammer home the sort of the, the fork in the road of where you've got patients who are really going to get into palliative care intervention where the goal is um, symptom management, maybe um, comfort over consciousness, that this could be used mm-hmm. primarily to achieve sedation for patients who are really agitated in advanced life. Yeah. Um, versus somebody who may have a reversible delirium where you need to do a good medical workup, you would not want to give three milligrams sure. of them. Do you think it hastened death? No. I, I mean, at least in the trial, it didn't. And, you know, I think that the challenge that we would have to do in the real world, and I think what they didn't talk about so much in the trial was, um, you know, in combination, particularly if you have patients who are on higher doses of opiates, um, and mm-hmm. in combination with that amount of lorazepam. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of this, again, is the shared decision-making with families around um, mm-hmm. being clear about what the intent of the treatment is, if it's the goal is to try to help improve symptoms. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think oftentimes, and I would say most clinical experience, we've usually tried lower dosages of the agent first <laughs> to sort of mm-hmm. see if it's going to help. 
Um, and I would argue that you should probably try our lower dose first. Um, and of course. But I, I think you know part of this is again, it's great to see these trials giving us better information about how to select specific patient populations. Because I think five years ago, without any of this data, um, we were just doing things based on kind of guidelines or certain recommendations that weren't based out of a lot of good randomized trial data. And starting right. to get this information about how we can make better decisions really just takes us, helps us take better care of patients. And you're just taking care of the one patient that's in front of you. Um, but we just all need a Dr. Webb in our pocket, though, to do that. <laughs> 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 so I want to kidnap you and bring you home with me because you are so amazing. Is there anything else you would like to add before we close out our podcast? I just want to say thank you for um, you know, bringing this to light about having conversations about these medications and, and trying to provide better education to our colleagues. I think at any time it's always good to ask for help, and I would tell anybody at an institution, if you've got a friendly um, palliative care doc or a friendly psychiatrist that you can ask questions about dosages, um, that's oftentimes the best um, kind of strategy to, to get some assistance. It's just to phone a friend because um, it can be confusing because there's just so many medicines. Wonderful. And you promise to let me do a podcast with you once a year, right, for a little psych update forever. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I would very much like to thank Dr. Jason Webb, who I think is just amazing and just so valuable, uh, the information that he provides to all of us. So, again, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2018, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science and Graduate Certificates in Palliative Care program or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.com dot edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.